Our reading today is from the book of Job. It starts in chapter 1 at verse 13. And we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 10. This reading can be found on page 417 and 418 of those blue pew Bibles. I'll remind you of that before we get into the sermon. Um, I would encourage you to listen. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came along with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes 
Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As we come to pray, I'd ask you to pray for your preacher. Anyone who enters into this text honestly understands that it is way above our pay grade. Please come and pray with me. Father in heaven, we um, draw near to you. And maybe with a whole different view of the fear of the Lord. Father, we praise you for your word. And I have never sung, Lord, how firm a foundation in light of Job before. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for how firm a foundation you have given us in your word. And Father, for that to be the case, we need you to come and work among us. Father, we don't have the ability to convince ourselves of the truth of this passage and of all that is here. Um, We don't have the ability to convince one another, and so we desperately need you to come and work. And Father, there are some of us this week who know that more clearly than others of us this week. And so I pray that you would elicit prayer even from those this week. From those today that they would pray on behalf of us as we look at this passage. Father, you know the brokenness that is in our lives. You know how you have brought us to the end of ourselves and how we continue to sense that we are being battered and beaten and falling And Father, how the weight of the brokenness of this world and all of its beauty seems to stand above us like a towering wave to crash on us. And we wait and we wonder and we watch. Father, your word says that you are aware of our tears And poetically, you have said that you keep our tears in a bottle. You remember them more than we do. Would you convince that man here today, that woman here today that needs to know that you know and that you hear? Father, would you draw us into this story? So that your name would be glorified. And so that we would be changed. Father, for some among us, it will be the first time they have ever heard the gospel. And would you cause it to sink deep into their hearts? Father, for others of us, we have heard the gospel before. We ask you, would you help us hear it afresh? that we would know the glory that you have revealed in Christ. Holy Spirit, hold Christ up before us now, we pray. Would you work where we cannot? 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. Have mercy. Thanks for your patience with me. We're going to look at this, and we will not go verse by verse. Do not worry. We would be here a long time. But I do have some observations for you about this text. And Nathan and I have asked you to consider the text of Job through the lens of the fear of the Lord. All right? The lens of the fear of the Lord. You know that we have already set our case throughout Scripture the multiple times when it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Even in Job chapter 28, from the very lips of Job himself, he says that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And we're asking you to consider this book of Job through that lens of the fear of the Lord. What's really interesting as we get started is to recognize that Job is not privy to these heavenly scenes that you and I have just heard. One more of two. Nathan did the first one last week. Go back and listen to it if you want to. Job is not privy to these. And if you haven't read the entirety of the book of Job, Job never becomes privy to these scenes. Kind of amazing. But we, as the readers, are privy to these scenes. What's interesting is that suffering naturally brings our attention into a horizontal plane of life, doesn't it? We naturally see each other suffer, suffer and we are immediately attracted. We are immediately wondering, how do I keep that from happening to me? We immediately engage horizontally. But as readers of this text, we can't do that. This heavenly reality that precedes what we just read and that was again seen to in what we just read is like a massive mountain that dominates the landscape and it exposes us. Job is called wisdom literature. We have read from Proverbs to Psalms to Job that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I want to encourage you as you look at these observations with me to focus our attention on God as readers of this book of Job because that is the context that is uniquely ours. I want to share with you three observations as we look at this narrative through the lens of the fear of the Lord. The first observation is simply this. That Satan is wrong. Now, that might have stood out to you quicker than it stood out to me. And if it did, have mercy on me. Be patient. But here, Satan is wrong. And he's not just wrong once. He's wrong twice. Satan is wrong about Job. And one of the things that we learn about this is that Satan may know humanity generally, but he is not privy to every one of your thoughts or my thoughts or Job's thoughts. We can look at this text, and in verse 11, Satan declares to God, he says this uh, in verse 11 that Nathan read last week, but stretch out your hand, God, and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. God allows Satan 
to take away everything from Job. But notice how Job responds in verses 20 and 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. That's not the only time that Satan was wrong in this text. If you turn the page in chapter 2 in verse 5, you hear Satan say to God, Oh yeah, well skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bones and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. But what we see in verse 10 is that Job does not curse God to his face. Rather, we are told that in all of this, Job does not sin with his lips. What is foremost in these few verses is that Job, in the midst of all of this, in verse 22 says that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan could not have missed the mark more than he did with Job. Satan was wrong twice. This is a very important thing for us to consider. Oftentimes, we hear the words of Psalm 139. You know my every thoughts. Before they're on my tongue, you know them. You know when I go out and when I sit down. You know everything about me. And oftentimes, we attribute that knowledge to Satan. And we need to be careful about how we speak about Satan. We need to take care how we speak. We often might throw around the phrase like, the devil made me do it. But this is a great example where the devil does not make us do it and cannot, even to Job. We are not an open book to Satan. We are an open book to God. As Nathan said last week, it is not Satan who was aware of Job, but it's God who was aware of Job. And I want to tell you today, it is not Satan who is aware of you and your thoughts. It is God who is aware of you and your thoughts. It is important that we recognize how wrong Satan is about Job's relationship with God and vice versa with God's relationship with Job. Nathan used, Nathan used this word last week and we need to continue to use it. This idea that God is transactional in the way that he cares for us. That is the assumption that Satan brings not only of Job's relationship with God but of God's relationship with Job. Satan is wrong for Job and he is also wrong about God. And this is very important for us to consider in this story of Job. This is the heavenly focus. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips, told us twice. I can tell you as one who has sat in this story for a long time now, I feel like Isaiah who wrote in Isaiah 55, 
look, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways higher than my ways. As high as your thoughts are above my thoughts, so are as high as, you know, however that goes. Did I mess it up? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways higher than my ways and your thoughts higher than my thoughts, right? I relate to that when I hear this. But it is very important that we stop and remember that Satan is wrong. Because we need to remember that ultimately Satan is wrong about God. Since the garden, we human beings have been tempted to believe Satan's lie about God. And listen, if we don't correct this, if we don't stop to think about this, the fact that Satan is not omniscient, the fact that Satan is not omnipotent, the fact that Satan is not omnipresent, then we are like climbers who go out to climb with knots in our ropes. And I can tell you as one with whom that has happened, you do not want to have that happen. And we need to consider that as we look at the fear of the Lord. It is the wisdom that we gain that unties the lies that Satan tells First observation, Satan is wrong. Second observation of three that I want to show you is Job's inescapable truth and his overriding conviction, which is based on his view of the world and on God. We are told in this that the question is whether or not Job is going to curse God or not, right? This heavenly picture is whether or not Satan can force Job to curse God. But it's amazing that we see Job doing almost the very opposite, isn't it? And we'll go ahead and say the very opposite. What does Job do instead of cursing? Again, I want to direct your attention to chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Look at the verbs that describe Job when he discovers through these four servants who come to him that he has lost everything in this world, including all of his children. Everything. We read in verses 20 and 21 that Job arose, that he tore his robes, He fell to the ground, fill in the blank. What do you expect to be there? Would you have filled in the blank with worship? Would you have said that Job worshipped? How does Job worship in this scenario versus cursing God? Listen to what Job says for a hint for us to understand how he worships. This is the inescapable truth that Job proclaims in verse 21. Naked have I come from my mother's womb, and naked will I return. Job's inescapable truth about the reality of this life is foundational to this observation. 
I was with a group of people who were trying to raise money last week, and they talked about that old story that says a great benefactor just died and left all his money, and the greedy developers go, how much money did he leave? And the answer, of course, is what you know, he left everything. He, he left everything. And we know this, but are we aware of this? This inescapable truth, naked have I come from my mother's womb, and naked will I return. Is that the inescapable truth that guards your heart? Everybody's got crazy uncles, right? As a brother to other siblings, I'm afraid I might be the crazy uncle. I don't know, yet to be determined. You usually have to be a little bit older to be the crazy uncle. But we have a crazy uncle in our family whose slogan of life is whoever dies with the most toys wins. Now look, all of us hear that and we either dismiss it with a chuckle or we go, that is almost so ridiculous to say in the face of this story about Job. To be stupid. But I want you to do an exercise with me. Why don't you replace toys in that, whoever dies with the most toys wins, with whatever you value the most in your life. Let's try it on. Whoever dies with the most experiences wins. The whole image of a bucket list. Whoever dies with the most power wins. Whoever dies with the most fame wins. Whoever dies with the strongest family wins. I have another older relative in my life. And in their old age, they have begun to remind their grandchildren that one day they will be forgotten. <laughs> they tell their grandchildren, you know, I too once had a grandfather, and you, grandchild, don't even know that grandfather. And one day too, I will be forgotten. What is the inescapable truth? that Job gives us that allows him to worship and not curse. One of those inescapable truths is that naked I have come into this world and naked I will return. But there's also an overriding conviction in verse 21. Look at it with me. Verse 21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is Job saying in that? If we cut to the chase, Job is simply saying that he is utterly dependent on an all-powerful God. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I read Job's story and I can't help to ask, what would I do? And I want to ask you, what would you do? Would you curse God? Well, one of the ways to dig deeper is to ask yourself, what is the truth or the truths by which I live? What are the overriding convictions about my relationship with God? Is your relationship with God one of transaction 
Or is it one of dependence? Are you on team Job? Or are you on team Satan? You might ask, Bradley, how in the world am I supposed to know? I feel like I've just gotten hit over the head with a two-by-four in this sermon. How do I know? Well, let me ask you this question that's a little bit more prescriptive, maybe. Do you turn toward disciplines in your life when everything seems to be falling apart? When everything seems to be falling apart, do you turn as a Christian toward disciplines? Oh man, I got to go to church more. I I need to pray more. I need to start doing X, Y, or Z. Let me turn that coin over. When things are going good in your life, do you do very little as far as pursuing God? I can't remember the last time I prayed. What, What would I have to pray for? Everything's just fine. Maybe you hear this and you go, I want to be one of those who depends on God. But how do I do that? How do I do that? And this is my third observation and my last observation. My third observation as we look at this narrative through the lens of the fear of the Lord is this. Integrity matters. Integrity matters. How do we define integrity? I'll let the dictionary do it for us, and it's fine for what we're dealing with today. Integrity is this, a firm adherence to a code, especially of moral or of artistic value, right? You think about the the integrity of an artist refusing to do something just because it sells, right? Their firm adherence to a code. Or a firm adherence to a code of morality, right, is more applicable to what we're seeing here. Integrity matters is my observation. Where do I get it? Why did I say that? Look in God's second conversation with Satan. Chapter 2, verse 3, right? And listen to what God says in verse 3. He says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? That's exactly what he said the last time he had a conversation with Satan. It's nearly word for word. But then listen to what God adds. After Satan had destroyed everything that he owned and all of Job's children as well. It says he, but that stands for Job. Job still holds fast his integrity. Although you, Satan, incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God is not saying in those words that there is no reason for what is happening in the book of Job. He is saying that Satan incited God and God is responsible. God is taking responsibility, right? Even the way that Job gives God responsibility, God is taking responsibility and saying, you incited me to do this, and there's nothing that Job did that deserved it, is what, Satan, is, is what God is saying to Satan. And God is pointing out Satan's integrity. And in case you don't think that that's an important piece here, look at how this story ends. Verse 9. 
Then Job's wife, his wife, said to him, Job, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife makes Satan's point, doesn't she? Look, I think my dad's right. Be careful before you blame Job's wife. Which of us in this room could stand shoulder to shoulder with Job's wife? With that knowledge of sorrow and of grief. But to be careful is different than being honest. Job's wife speaks the temptation of Satan here. I've been reading a book um, called Embodied Hope. I met the professor who wrote it last week, and I have loved it. I would recommend it to any of you. It has to do with chronic physical suffering. And in that book, he writes that nothing like chronic physical pain can tempt you and me to think hard thoughts about God. That phrase, hard thoughts, is from John Owen. To think a hard thought about God is to think a thought that is other than God's own character. But there is nothing like the pain that you experience as a parent to a child or physical, chronic pain to tempt you and me to think hard thoughts about God. Job's response to his wife is unsettling, to say the least. Listen to what he says. Verse 10, He said to her, Job said to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? You need to look up that word evil. Look at the footnote. It also means disaster. But it's okay for it to be evil there because isn't the whole question that we're struggling with, who is this God? What does it mean to fear him? But Job's response to his wife is actually one of great gentleness. Do you note that in his question to his wife, he invites her back in. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? What does this say about Job's integrity? Listen. Job, we have been told, has a habit of receiving from God. Everything that comes into his life, good or disaster, he says, this is what I receive from God. Job has a habit of receiving from God. Not saying, I have earned this, this is mine, but I have received this from God. Job also has another habit that we've seen already, doesn't he? The habit of not cursing God. How do we know that habit? Well, not only has he not done it in the two options that he has, but if you go back to the very first chapter in verse 5, you remember that Job continually followed his kids around. Every birthday, 10 kids. That's it almost once a month. 
that he was following his kids around, asking them, hey, hey, come over here. I know you had a great party last night, but just go ahead and put your hand on this sheep so that I can go and slaughter the sheep just in case you curse God. Job was habitual, both in his confession of receiving from God, but and also his avoidance of cursing God. Integrity matters. It's almost like the opposite is what we know the most, isn't it? Have you yet heard your adult child or a child that you knew as a younger child and now is in your presence come in your presence and something happens and they exclaim a curse word? Have you ever done that? Kids, have you ever done that in front of your parents? Parents, have you ever done that in front of your kids or your parents? What is it? about suffering and pain that brings out what is inside. One of the most powerful things I've experienced this semester has been reading Thomas Aquinas with a group of guys. Because he is exact in the way that he thinks. Our actions... Mental actions, belief, physical actions, actions are always a combination of our reasoning and our will, right? That makes sense. It's that combination of reason and desire, what we desire. In other words, we see faithfulness and we go, you know something, I can reason that faithfulness is good, but now I want to be faithful, I desire that. I will for that to be the case. And not only intellectually, but physically, that connection between reason and appetite that continues and continues, I long for this, and so I do this, I reason it, and so I want it more, and I do it again, underscores this idea that our actions, even our beliefs, are affected and shaped by our habits. What we do. You guys, this is why we do the liturgy the way we do it every Sunday. This is why we don't start with the Lord's table one day and go, oh, that'd be kind of fun. Why don't we invite everybody in? We'll just start with the Lord's Supper and we'll reverse everything. We'll do an invocation and let folks go at the end. You would go, what is that about? But what I have seen and the practicality of this is that Aquinas wants to train preachers who are going to be pastors, who are going to counsel people, and who are going to say, think about your habits and the power that your habits have on even your reasoning. Our habits matter. Integrity matters. God recognizes it. Satan tempts against it, even through the lips of Job's wife. I know, 
we want to shut the book and say, it, 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 that can be the end, right? Those three observations, the book of Job is over. I hate to tell you. Well, I don't hate to tell you either. I delight in telling you this. We have only just begun in the book of Job. Why is that? The reason is, is because these three observations are not enough. It's still not enough. Satan is wrong. There is this inevitable truth of naked I go from my mother's womb and naked I'll return. There's this overriding conviction that I am dependent completely on God. There is this practice of habit that leads to integrity. But we are only getting started. Because Job continues. The very thing that we are looking for in Job is actually what we see in Jesus. And that's the heart of the Father. Knowing that Satan's wrong, knowing these inevitable truths and overriding convictions and, and practicing these habits for integrity is not enough. We must know God in communion with God, in union with God. That's the very thing that Job pleads for and what we hope to show you God provides Job, even though Job has no idea who his Redeemer will be. But to read Job through the lens of the gospel is to recognize that knowing the heart of the Father is in Christ. Jesus is the one who taught us how to pray. The habit of praying. What is it? How do we start? Our Father in heaven. And in case you might think that maybe I'm pulling that phrase out of context, the very parable that follows the Lord's Supper in Luke 11 is Jesus explaining that though our earthly fathers, though they're evil, know how to give us good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask for it? Do you struggle to believe the heart of God for you? This story of Job does not allow you and me to take our attention off of God. Do you struggle to believe this? Be encouraged. You're in good company. Not, not just my company. I, you, you make the determination of that. But you're in good company. You know who else to struggle to believe it? Every one of the disciples. Everyone. I'm going to give you a job this week. Go back and read John 14 through 17. And, and don't read it once. Read it twice. And don't just read it twice. Read it three times. And then read it a fourth time. What is the focus of all of those chapters? 14, 15, 16, and 17. 
Jesus' last words to his disciples, what's the focus? The love of the Father for them. How does it start? I'm going to go to the Father. Thomas goes, where are you going? The Father? We don't know the Father. And Jesus looks at me and he goes, if you have known me, you know the Father. But I want you to recognize what John 3.16 says about the cross of Christ. The extent of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Listen, the habit of this Lord's Supper that we're about to do is H-U-G-E. It's huge. The habit of rehearsing the gospel that God loved us so much that he gave his son for us is huge. It is the heart of the Father that we need. We need to practice communicating it to each other because that will prepare us to suffer well. And it's to this table that we come. 